Well, good morning. Go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 is where we're going to, to continue this morning. We're going to read uh, from verse 11 in just a few minutes. This is our, our eighth week in 1 Peter. And so far we have been able to be delighted by some pretty amazing passages and some amazing truth. The exhortation that, that Peter is writing here in, in 1 Peter is to a church scattered throughout uh, Asia Minor uh, in the first century that was being persecuted and, and suffering. Uh, at this point in his writing, the, the persecution and the suffering was not institutionalized by the, by the empire of Rome as it will be, and really honestly in just a few years. However, they were already, as a church, as a distinct people, facing some very tough times of persecution locally, and I think what they were seeing was is that government officials just didn't care, okay? So, what did Peter encourage them with? How would he get them through this? Well, he gave them God's word. He gave them the truth of God's word. He gave them rich theology. He gave them rich theology that would encourage them in their understanding of what suffering is and what suffering is doing to encourage their faith. He encouraged them the, the rich, deep theology of God's sovereignty and election, salvation, hope, and mercy, the imperishable, unfading, undecaying inheritance that they will receive in Christ the enjoyment of being the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies, that they get to enjoy that fulfillment, the grace and mercy of God, the Holy Spirit, and the sufficiency of the Word of God that was preached to them and changed their lives. As we talked about last week, changed their identity from not in Christ to being in Christ, being of the darkness but now of the marvelous light to encourage them to love one another with a sincere brotherly love and, though, and through the imperishable seed of the living and abiding Word of God. And this morning, there's a, a slight transition in our passages this morning, our passage this morning from relating to Jesus Christ to us and from relating to one another as Christians to now, how do Christians relate to this world? How do Christians relate to this world? You know, that has always been a question that Christians have asked. Hence why Peter is answering it, honestly. In the very first century, Peter is, or Paul as well answer, would answer it as well. But what about us? Do we know? Do we know how we are to live in this culture and in this society that as soon as you get used to some parts of it, it changes. A culture that is rapidly moving into a post-Christian culture. This is a very important question for us to answer and to consider. We better know the answer to that question or else we are going to have our metaphorically lunches eaten. How do we live in the world, but not of the world. Let's look at Second Peter, or First Peter, excuse me, chapter two. First Peter, chapter two, starting in verse eleven. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put 
silence the ignorance of the foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. I have to admit, coming up to this passage, I wasn't exactly looking forward to preaching it in one sense. And yet in another sense, this is a very important passage that needs to be preached. I think we're all okay for the most part as Christians, at least on the outside, we're okay with verses 11 and 12 dealing with the obtaining from or uh, abstaining from sin. We're, we're okay with that mostly, but what about this whole submit to the government part in verses 13 through 17? The past year and a half, and really going back over a decade now or more, Everything has been stained, and I mean that word very literally, stained with politics. Everything that is political is now so emotionally charged that when we get to passage like this, I just don't feel like stepping on a landmine today, or any day for that matter. There's a lot of diagnosing that we could do, and we should do, to determine how our country has gotten into this certain place, but that's not our concern here. The concern for us here is how the church has been given into these politics in such a way where our emotions have been given over to them, like the culture. From the last election and to COVID, We've seen churches and denominations fracture. Families and friends. The mandates in particular sparked immense emotions and reactions. The debate hit the internet to attack one another because of the various viewpoints that they may have. A a church should never gather. This isn't loving your neighbor for gathering together and Take the chance of spreading COVID. You should wear a mask. You should always social distance so you won't cause a brother or sister to stumble. You should do these things because Romans 13 is telling Christians that they should submit to the government no matter what. And then you have the other side that says you should meet. Always meet. You should always preach the gospel. You should always sing loudly. You should should wear a mask or don't wear a mask. It's your choice, but you must gather. And we haven't even brought up the vaccine. And I'm not. (laughs) I have my side on where I land, and I hope it's biblical. I think it's obvious what, where our church stands on these things. However, it still, as a Christian, has grieved me how easily churches and their leaders are so freely able to attack one another. That should grieve all of us. This morning, my goal is not for us to get emotionally charged, but our goal as we come to God's word every Sunday every Lord's Day, and as you, get on, as you get into God's Word every day, is to be humbled by God's Word. To be humbled by God's Word and to be shaped in the area that He speaks to us, and particularly this morning, fighting against sin and submitting to governmental authorities. This isn't easy. And every circumstance will require a a different response. However, what is the same is that Christians are called to obedience. We are called to obedience. Obedience to God's word. Obedience to God's word is obedience to God. And is glorifying to Christ. Brothers and sisters, to answer this question that we have been poised with, 
is we must be discerning through God's word. These things may not be easy for sure, and they may not be easy as the future comes and as we see uh, uh, continually things roll down the pike. But what is for sure is what we see right at the beginning of verse 11. We see, once again, the standing of the church. For Peter addresses the readers, the church, with one simple word, beloved. If you have an NIV, I'm sorry, because it translates this word horribly. It translates it as dear friends. That's terrible. Better translation is beloved. Beloved. It literally means, the word literally means beloved by God. How do you get dear friends from that? Beloved by God. And as the church, what does that mean? That means God specifically, particularly, loves his people. He loves his church. Not, and not just as a group, but he loves us individually within the group of his church. He uses this word. Peter uses this word affectionately to summarize all that he has already proclaimed over us, already that he has proclaimed over you. And the conclusion is, is this, you must be loved. I hope people see that, right? When they, they see me at home and they see my wife, how she cares for our family and cares for me, I hope they see and can even say to me, man, he must be loved. His children must be loved. And that's what we see, the shepherding of God, loving his people. Look at verse 9. It says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved. Beloved, listen. So this is the umbrella over all that we're going to talk about this morning of abstaining from sin and from submitting to the governmental authorities as all under this umbrella of love. We are a loved people. This suffering churches of Asia Minor. They're a loved people. Brothers and sisters, as the church, we are loved. And where has God shown us his love the most? He has shown it in his son, Jesus Christ, and the cross. Is there anything else that the Lord has to do to prove his love to you? If your answer to that question is yes, then as we see in 1 John, then you do not know his love. So as we look at these commands of how we Live in this world as Jesus said to, in it, but not of it. This morning, we have to look at the two specific ways that Peter tells us. The first is to abstain from sin and to submit to authority. Two wonderful topics that grow churches. So how do Christians in this world live in this world when naturally the world opposes the gospel, opposes Jesus Christ, opposes the Lord, and opposes and will oppose other Christians like we before Christ, even in our self-righteousness, even in our religiosity, we rejected Christ. Or even in our licentious behavior of sin, we were rejecting Christ. In our atheism, we were rejecting Christ. Verse 4, Jesus was rejected by men. He was the stone that the builders rejected, but he became the cornerstone. Verse 6, he is the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense because they disobeyed the word. Christians are opposed and the gospel is rejected because of Christ. But it's not just unbelievers, culture, evil systems of this world that oppose us. Because of the gospel, Peter doesn't start with the external, the external opposition toward us, but he goes to the internal opposition. He warns us first to abstain from sin that begins from within. Abstain from the sin that begins within. 
Yes, in Christ, we are chosen. We are a royal priesthood. We just read it. We are his people. We are living in marvelous light and all true and glorious. But the reality is, is that we still live in this fallen flesh and to have to live in a very fallen world. In verse 11, Peter reminds us who we are. First, beloved, right? Chosen by God, loved by God. And second, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. He reminds us once again who we are. That as Christians, we are sojourners and exiles in this world. We've already encountered this idea of exiles back in verse 1, right? As being strangers and exiles and, and aliens. And this is the second time in the letter because he wants us to get, wants to get through to us and to them that when we are in Christ, then we never really fully belong to this world, even in our hometowns. We never really truly belong. There's always this rub. There will never be true peace or harmony with the world as Christians because things are not right. We know they are not right. As Christians, we are strangers. We are aliens. And when we live according to how God has called us and how he has made us new, given us this new identity in Christ, then naturally we are going to be different. We are going to be strangers. We are going to be weirdos to an unbelieving world, and they might just oppose you for the very reasons why. Because we're different. In fact, listen, the very reason why you are exiles is not because of your race. It is not because of the way you speak or the way you talk or the way you look or even where you come from. The reason why you are exiles is because Jesus has redeemed you from a futile life and he gave you a new one. And you are like a shining light in the darkness. Darkness does not like the light. Just because we are in this place as elect exiles, then we do not shrink back. We do not retreat. We engage with the gospel, making the invisible church visible. We are sojourners, which means we have, uh, we have this life of a pilgrim. As a pilgrim, meaning, meaning then we are really not at home. We are just traveling through. You don't take up residence in this world of sin. The earth and the heavens, they're, they're glorious, and there's so much that we can enjoy here in creation, and even in the most mundane things, and the most mundane places, we can still find beauty in the glory of God in creation. We can enjoy a sunset and a sunrise. We can enjoy the changing of the seasons, and at many times we can feel at home because we enjoy it so much, and we can get comfortable. And then in that comfort, we become proud, but Peter's words should be very striking to our ears, that you are not at home. You are an exile. You are a stranger. You're just a pilgrim traveling through this land to the, to the next. I know we have a lot in common with, with unbelievers and our friends. We have a lot in common with unbelieving neighbors. We have common interests and the same likes. We have some of the same kind of stories and the same kind of backgrounds, even some of the same values with some of the people that we grew up with. But there's no real shalom. There's no real peace. We can sense this even more if you keep a pulse on culture and how its values and morals are no longer lining up even close to a biblical standard of morals and values. But brothers and sisters, I know these terms may seem like they are negative. They're bad, and being in exile, being a weirdo, an alien, all that is negative or wrong because we just want to be at home, but this isn't all bad news. They're not thing, these aren't things all that we should just grieve, but there's some good news because what these terms are telling us is that there's something better to come. We will not always be traveling. 
We would not always be pilgriming through this weary land. We would not only always feel like exiles in our own bodies of the flesh, but soon we will be home. Like we have sung together over the last couple months, that promised land is calling, we're almost home. And not a tear shall fall then, we're almost home. Make ready now your souls for that kingdom come. No turning back, we're almost home. And second, he tells us, in verse 11, Peter wants us to know who our enemy is. He says, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Know who your enemy is. We know that just for the very fact that we are Christians, we could face opposition and persecution. That's a, that's a, that's a reality. That's, that's historical reality. That's a present reality. And we, even though we may not have experienced it, we certainly see it throughout the world. And we've, we've talked about that. This is the very reason why Peter is writing this book, is to encourage them as they face opposition and persecution. We face opposition as well from the accuser. Later in 1 Peter 5.8, Peter says, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I mean, that's, that's bringing some serious heat of opposition right there. Some serious heat when we're trying to, to work out our salvations in this life. We're trying to be obedient. We're trying to pursue righteousness. We're just trying to endure it's clear we have opposition and we have an enemy. However, Peter names and identifies this, and this first enemy. And it's not the ones that we naturally want to defend ourselves against. Peter warns us to abstain from the passions of the flesh because the flesh is what is waging war against your soul. The passions are the flesh, are our natural desires that human beings have apart from from the work of the Spirit of God. That is the flesh. The flesh is weak. The flesh is failing. It's like the grass that withers and fades in, in chapter 1, 24. The flesh desires sin. And I believe that what he's speaking of here, he's talking about all sin, not just the lust of the flesh of eyes, drunkenness, etc., but even the sins that we've named earlier in verse 1 as envy and hypocrisy. I don't think we need to list out the different types of sin that I'm talking about. We would be here for the rest of the day. Our flesh is our enemies, is our enemy. And as he says, it is waging a war against you. Your flesh is waging a war against you. And if we are at war, then we must, as our lives, right, in our lives, make our lives in such a way as if we are in wartime living. Not comfortable, not being at home, but with a posture of battle against the flesh. You see, our battle is not against unbelieving people of the world. That's not our battle. Our battle is not against unbelievers. Our battle is not against their evil, wicked idolatries. They are our mission field. We go with the gospel, proclaiming to them our battle is against our own natural, sinful desire, passion, the passions of the flesh. You see, the temptation for Christians throughout centuries has just been to wage a war externally. They tried to do it in the Crusades and some other things. Then moved into this movement of monastic type communities where, where one Christian would go off by himself and then it would turn into a group of Christians that would just go off by themselves and completely separate themselves from the outside world as if that's what's going to separate them completely from sin and then they can live this perfect life of righteousness. But it fails every time. The monastic life fails because the problem is, is you can never separate yourself from the sin of the flesh if you are still there. The problem isn't what's outside. The problem starts in the inside. 
We abstain from sin because we know who our enemy is. It's our own flesh, and we must make war on it with the sword of the Spirit. We haven't been left on our own to wage this war by ourselves. We have been made new, regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We have been given the sword of the Spirit to wage war against the flesh. We have been given the, sword, the, the shield of the Holy Spirit who continually reminds us of our sonship as beloved and calls us to greater faith and repentance. And he has given us each other. The word is our sword in which we are to wield and make war on the flesh. Here's one way. Memorize. Memorize this verse when temptation comes. 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Come pack in that heat when temptation comes, when the flesh tempts you. We fight those desires those passions of the flesh with greater desires, with a greater affection, a greater affection for light, for marvelous light, for righteousness, for nobility, for peace, for honor, for love and joy that only comes in being in Christ. The third way Peter wants us to abstain from sin is to know who we serve. Verse 12, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So do you hear the connection between abstaining from the passions of the flesh and keeping your conduct of the, with, among the Gentiles honorable? I hope so, because Peter is not telling us to live two different lives. He's not telling us to be sinful in your private life, and as long as no one else sees it and they see this external righteousness, then you'll be okay. That's not what he's saying. That's, that's hypocrisy. He's telling us that our fight against the flesh makes our conduct, our words and, our con and actions, to be honorable. And the whole point, the whole point is so that unbelievers would see your good deeds, your good works in the Spirit, and glorify God on the day of visitation. On the day of visitation, Peter, this means uh, Peter could have in mind that the day of judgment, and then on the day of judgment will bring vindication because, because now these people who have been doing evil against you, right, they now see that you were trying to do good and be honorable before them, and so then they will glorify God in that day, and I think that's true. However, God is also glorified when people believe and glorify God. We live noble, righteous, honorable lives because unbelievers all around us will see those good works, those good works that the Spirit produces. They will see you, and they will hear you, and some unbelievers will repent and they will believe, and then therefore give glory to God on the day of visitation. We may be reviled, we may be slandered, we may be called evil doers, even though all that we have done is good. You know, that's just the kind of world we live in, isn't it? And it's nothing new. Believe in moral truth, Believe in right, believe in wrong, believe in biblical sexuality by God's design for his glory and for our joy to bring about human flourishing, and just watch the labels come. Watch the accusations and slander come. How dare you believe marriage is between a real biological male and biological female? How dare you believe that God only created male and female distinctly? How dare you believe that life is sacred? 
you're the evildoer. You're the violent now. You're the terrorist. You're the evildoer. And yet, despite these accusations, brothers and sisters, let your conduct outshine and outweigh and outlast their slander. Always remember, always remember that as they notice the goodness and the honor, some will repent and be saved. And as a result of their salvation, God would be glorified. Peter was confident that some unbelievers will be saved when they notice the godliness of believers. We serve them with our goodness as we live according to the word of God, and by serving them, we are serving the Lord to his glory. So the first answer to the question is, how do we live in this world, is to abstain from sin. We should abstain from our sin. Let not your sin ruin your witness. For the unbelieving world, some may be watching. And we hope that they would glorify God with us. I like what we read this morning from Jeremiah 29. That's why I picked it. And in verse 7, it says, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exiles, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Seek the good of our city by abstaining from our sins and living honorably before those who will call you evildoers without to share the gospel without stain or without blemish. That's the first answer to our question. The second answer to the question, how do we live in the world but not of it? And this can be a complicated one, is that we are to submit to authorities. Remember, opposition primarily comes internally, right? It comes from our flesh and, and not externally. So Peter has in mind that we're abstaining from sin in such a way that our conduct is honorable before the Gentiles, before the world, and so that when we come to this particular point, we've been dealing with our own sin before we deal with the external. And here's what Peter says. Again, look at verse 13. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you would put to silence the ignorance of the foolish people. You know, that's a hard passage to hear when the country is not going in the direction that we would want it. And that's hard to hear when the elected officials are not the ones that we voted for. But even though we are sojourners and exiles... We're still residents. We're still residents here. This is still a world in which we still live. We are still citizens of heaven. We're ambassadors of Christ, but we're also residents and citizens of this country, and we have to know how to live in it. This is a question, as we said from the very beginning, that Christians have always had to answer themselves. They've always had to ask, how do we submit? How do we submit to this? How do we do this? What does it even mean to submit? You know, the Christians of the first century that Peter was writing to were some pretty tough times. There were some pretty hard times for them, especially calling themselves Christians and living as Christians. They didn't live in a constitutional republic. They didn't have any particular rights. They lived under a tyrannical ruler who considered themselves to be God and can rule indiscriminately and say whatever he wanted to say and do whatever he wanted to do. That is the context in which Peter is writing to them. And that is the context we need to understand that's being commanded and told to us to be still subject and to submit. Be subject is the central theme and verb in this section. 
And submission has always been a part of the New Testament. Submission is always in the New Testament. We see it throughout the New Testament. As Christians, we submit to the Lord. Church members submit to one another. Wives submit to their own husbands. Employees submit to their bosses. Children obey and submit to their parents. And all of us, as we see here, are to submit to our governmental authorities. To submit is a willing obedience to authority. To submit is willing obedience to authority, to God-given authority. Peter's command here represents a general truth that in most every situation, Christians should submit. Believers should be inclined to obey and submit to the rulers more than they are inclined to disobey and to balk. Now, I want to be careful here because we also know that authority and rulers, they are not absolute. And this passage shows us that. They are not to infringe upon God's lordship. And if they do, then Christians, we should disobey. If anything that they command us to do contradicts God's will, God's lordship, then we respectfully disobey. We see examples in the Bible. The Hebrew midwives in Egypt. I love that story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's fantastic. Daniel in the lion's den. Peter and John. So here's a man who understood. Beat us if you want, but you can't command us from preaching the gospel. There are times, brothers and sisters, when we must respectfully stand against I believe we have seen some of those in recent times. Government officials have stepped over the line mandating that churches should not gather because of what we've heard is the excuse of the pandemic. That's clearly stepping outside of their authority. The authority that we believe that God has ordained, God has given them. Churches were fined. Some pastors we've seen in the world have were arrested and put in jail, brothers and sisters, we must be resolved on the line that we stand. But here's the thing. The point of this passage is not the exceptions. The point of this passage is not to make excuses for our submission. Peter doesn't make any specific exemptions and exceptions. He tells us to submit and to be subject. There was a guy who had a ministry, and Christina, we were talking about him this week, a guy who had a ministry in Pensacola, and I believe his ministry was about creationism, right? Okay. was about creationism, and he became very popular, and I think in the 90s, and he sold lots of books and VHS. If you don't know what a VHS, it's an old school DVD, which is an old school Blu-ray, which is an even older school digital download, right? Uh, and he would sell these things, and he did conferences and, and, and that sort of thing. It was very popular, and actually had some pretty, pretty good stuff. And, and then he decided that since he was a citizen of heaven, he was his own sovereign citizen, he didn't want to pay his, uh, he didn't want to obey the, the law anymore, which really boiled down he didn't want to pay his taxes. He didn't want to pay his taxes anymore because I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm not a citizen of of, um, of America. If I'm not a citizen of America, I don't need to pay American taxes. Well, you get it. How well do you think that that went? It didn't go over very well. He went to jail and he ruined his family. I get it. We can make some really good arguments that the federal tax, income tax, is unconstitutional. Among other things, we have seen happen and many things that go down but that doesn't excuse us from being obedient and, not be, and becoming a bad witness to the gospel like this man did. 
Romans 13, 1 through 7, is a very popular verse that people like to bring up when it comes to submission to the governmental authorities, and it rightly so. It says that God is the one who has ordained government. He has put them in places of power. They are to be servants of God to do what is good. That's why God puts them in place. Peter tells us that they are sent to punish those who do evil and to praise those who, who do good. And as crazy and as corrupt governments can, can be and may be, we, we don't really understand how bad things could really be if there was no government at all. Government is given as a mercy to human flourishing. If you really want to know how bad it can get, do some research on how bad it is in Haiti. The purpose of government is to be a mercy of God to restrain evil and promote good in human flourishing. There's so much there that I want to say, but the point that Peter makes is very clear, is to submit, to pay our taxes, to obey the laws, to vote, to do right before men, to pray for our leaders. I think that's implicit here as well as explicit within the scripture, to pray for our leaders. Brothers and sisters, I think this is a time we should be praying for our president and praying for Congress and senators and governors and our mayor that they would do their jobs to restrain evil and to promote what is good. And that we would live with clear consciences before God and man. In most every situation, Christians should be the best and the most upstanding citizens, no matter what party is in power. So let me give you three reasons from the text why we should submit to governmental authorities. First, we submit for the Lord's sake. You see that in verse 13, for the Lord's sake. In verse 15, it's the Lord's will that we submit, which, are, which both are really, I think, a reference to Jesus Christ. Christians obey the rulers of governing authorities ultimately because of their reverence and submission to the Lord. Not emperor worship, not government worship, not presidential worship, but out of reverence and submission to the Lord. If they violate the Lord's will, then we will respectfully resist, which means... It's impossible to imagine that we could obey commands from the government that contradicts God's commands for the Lord's sake. In the first and second century, here's an example. In the first and second century in Rome, it became a law that if a, children was, a child was born with mental or physical deformities, they were to be killed. Parents were to, to throw the baby outside of the city. It was a, considered a curse. To have such children. They were abandoned with outside of the city, and it was against the law to do anything with them. But Christians who have been transformed by the word, they could not kill what God has created. They believed in human dignity, that every person is created in the image of God. Christians would not kill their own children, but even at great risk of themselves, they would go and rescue these abandoned children out into the wilderness. They would bring them into their own homes and call them their own. They would adopt them. They understood adoption. They respectfully resisted. We obey the government not because we fear man and what they can do to us, but we obey for the sake of the Lord because it is his will. The second reason why we submit is for our own, is for the sake of others, excuse me, for the sake of others. Certainly, this is not the same priority for the sake of the, of the Lord, but built into our submission to the government authorities, we would give witness to our higher authority. Look at verse 15. It is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of the foolish people. So this is just, just like back in verse 12, that if we keep our conduct 
honorable among unbelievers, we, they would come to believe and glorify God, or at least some would come to believe and glorify God. Well, the same idea is being put forth in verse 15, that by doing good to our officials, we would put the silence, the ignorance of the foolish people. That we would put the silence, the ignorance of the foolish people. Now, forgive me, Lord, but there are some real dopes in government. Some real fools who show their ignorance and their arrogance daily. But when coming against us, we must always do what is good. We always do what is honorable. We always do what is courageous. To know when to stand and when to submit, our actions will expose them for who they are really are. And the truth will silence foolish, ignorant people. We do it for others. The third reason why we submit is we do it for our own sake. Verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom to cover up what is evil, but living as servants of God. In the Greek text, the verb in verse 16 is an implied verb, meaning it's not in verse 16. It's, it's to be the implied verb throughout the section, and the interpreters give us the, the word to live. And I think that works. It's a good, it's a good word because we're to, uh, we're to, as we live, we're to continue in submission, and we're going to do it in, in, in freedom. But the implied verb in this section is not to live, but it's to submit to be subject. So it should read, be subject as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but submit as servants of God. We of all people, we have been ransomed by the Christ's blood, haven't we? And if we have been ransomed by Christ's blood, then we are no longer subject to the futile lifestyle enslaved by sin that our world around us is in. That's why we no longer submit ourselves to it. We no longer submit ourselves to sin, but we abstain from sin. As Christians, listen, our submission to the government or anywhere else is never out of weakness, but it is out of freedom. We submit because we are free. I'm talking about contradictory to the world. Counterculture, are we? Swimming upstream, are, are we? Our freedom is not used to do evil. It is not used to cover up evil like the world, but genuine freedom does what? It liberates believers to do what is good to do what is honorable, to submit in the areas where we are called to submit. Those who use freedom as a license to evil reveal that they are not truly free since a life of wickedness is the very definition of slavery. Christians should never respond to the dictates of, gover to the dictates of government as slaves, as if we are still enslaved to sin or to them. But Christians, we obey out of strength. We obey because we are free. As Christians, we submit as servants of God. The word servants can also be rendered as slaves. Christian freedom is exercised under God's authority. In fact, genuine freedom is only experienced by those who are slaves to God. And if you're a slave to God, then you are a slave to nothing else. Which is why when we get into later passages in Peter and why uh, um, Paul speaks very freely when he tells a slave, a legitimate slave who is bound by change to submit to their masters. Because brother, sister, you are already free. He's not condoning slavery. He's, condo he's promoting freedom. You're already free. So brothers and sisters, we are not slaves to them, but we are slaves to God. And we submit as appropriately 
because we are already free. We are genuinely free. Believers, we are called upon to live under God's lordship, obeying government as God's servants. So, beloved church, we are in the world, but we are not of the world. We abstain from the passions of the flesh, from sin that seeks to ensnare us, and we must be humble and faithful to the will of the Lord to submit to governmental authority. Living, submitting as people who are truly free. Verse 17, I think, sums up everything with four imperatives. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Seek the good of everyone else in your conduct toward them. Share the gospel with them. Treat everyone with honor and dignity, for they are created in the image of God like you. Love the church. Love your brothers and sisters well. And stick close to them as you, Christian, pilgrim together. Fear the Lord and obey him in holiness and love. And honor those whom the Lord has put over you in authority respectfully, kindly, with compassion and dignity. But brothers and sisters, do not fear them. Fear the Lord. Because we are in the world, but we are not of the world. Yet this is how we live in the world. We live in the world, in the spirit, and with his word, and together. All God's people say, amen.